The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Time flies. Um, so maybe we'll just say our names again. Maybe by the end of it we'll know some of us, <laughs> some of our names. Hi, I'm Lilu. I'm Matt. Anne. Bill. Barbara. All right, welcome. And so this is our uh, last class of uh, the uh, uh, Anapanasati or uh, Sutta study and practice course. And so because it's uh, the last class, I thought we'll just do a quick review of the last few weeks um, and see kind of how how we unfolded this this course. And so we um, had intention to incorporate a sutta study alongside of our practice. And to do this, we picked out uh, Anapanasati, which is a, a very practice-centric uh, discourse. At the same time, it also had some rich teachings in our tradition, the mindfulness of breathing. And uh, we uh, kind of went on uh, this journey by really going through the text uh, in the sutta, uh, looking at uh, the uh, preliminary, uh, where the setting was um, uh, being described, and about how this teaching started um, being being taught uh, in the ring retreat. Uh, when the ring retreat was finished, uh, Buddha saw everybody was kind of inspired by everybody's practice, and they were very engaged um, uh, all along. And the Buddha decided, you know, he's going to stay one more month. And um, when this happened, he gave the teaching of Anapanasati. And so this Anapanasati has um, uh, the mindfulness of breathing, and he taught uh, the 16 steps, or we've been calling it a four tetrads, kind of a four quarters of instructions, and how we use mindfulness of breathing uh, to engage war- with our practice. And then last week, um, we kind of made a certain connection between Anapanasati with another major teaching, a major practice, um, which is also being introduced by the Susutta. That is a connection with four foundations of a mindfulness, or sometimes translated as the four establishments of a mindfulness, and how that uh, correlate with anapanasati and mindfulness of breathing, the, the four tetrads. And this week, I will introduce one more important teaching in our tradition, and that is the seven factors of awakening and how that relates to the practice of mindfulness of breathing and the four foundations of a mindfulness. And so that's going to be what uh, will unfold today. And we'll complete uh, the sutta 
uh, with the set of uh, relationships uh, that uh, we, uh, the sutta introduced to us. So as we've done each class, we'd like to just start um, by asking whether there are any questions that, that came to you as, as you sort of practiced this last week, uh, perhaps in particular as you started to look through or review this material on the relationship between the mindfulness of breathing practice, Anapanasati, and the seven factors of awakening or seven enlightenment factors. So any, any, and you know, anything at all um, that's come up for you in the last week is also fair game. Any questions, observations? So, um, I'm interested in hearing about how to use the mindfulness of breathing in in actual practice like is it a progressive thing like you master the uh, breathing long and then you move into experiencing rapture and then you move through the four or um, what are the thoughts about how actually to practice with that let me let me just say I mean I had my preference and I was like, well, I'm really enjoying this um, rapture. And um, and then I actually found it kind of d- distracting. I'm not sure it was that one because I was, um, wasn't rapture. There's was something else that took me in, into pleasure. It was something about pleasure. And then I was thinking about this time with my grandson. And I'm like, well, that's not what's supposed to be happening. So, you know, I've jumped around a bit, I would say. And I'm just interested in hearing how you would suggest to proceed. That's a wonderful question, because especially since it's emerged out of how your practice has been going, right? And so um, maybe I'll just point back to your experience and say, well, you may notice that they don't always unfold completely linearly, although this sequence is not arbitrary, let's say. Um, And it may be that there are times when the mind just feels like it really needs to absorb one particular step, in which case forcing it through some number of them in a theoretical way um, imposed from the top isn't really that beneficial. And so, and yet, if you linger too long, you might drift off into memories and thoughts of other things. So there's a, this balance of using the structure of the sutta to keep the mind, to inspire the mind toward a sequence without demanding that it fulfill that in any particular way. And we may have a few comments on this later as each of us are going to talk about how our engagement with the sutta has impacted our own practice in various ways. But there's there's no one way. Would anyone like to add? Maybe I'll add I'll add that I've heard um, different scholars and different scholar practitioners say different things. I've heard one well-respected Bhikkhubodhi say, it doesn't feel like it is a progression. These are just 16 different aspects. I've heard another scholar practitioner say, it is a progression going through 1 through 16. So I'm interpreting this as whatever feels right for one's practice. And maybe sometimes there is a progression and maybe sometimes there isn't or something like that. And so, uh, Can you use the question. microphone, Anne? <laughs> so, I mean, 
should one plan to stay with one in any particular sitting? Um, say to do the first one and then um, stay with one in the sitting as I've chosen that or if I decide to go with three to stay in the sitting or how about, I mean, jumping back and forwards doesn't seem to be the best thing to be doing. Yeah, do, do any of my esteemed colleagues want to comment on this? Um. Yeah, I, I think I would reiterate for not just in response to Anne's question, but to, you know, sort of on the general point, something that's been said now a couple times in different ways by, by Kim and Diana, which is the importance, the way this, this, these instructions or these descriptions of practice point us back to what we experience. And I think, as we'll see as we get into the seven fa- uh, enlightenment factors, encourage us to be confident in what comes up in practice. And so I think you'll find things like this. You start out with a sequence. You notice that the breath is becoming more settled. There's calming happening. That can maybe be a support for some, some, um, some pleasure, as you put it, or some rapture, some joy. Um, that that can lead to some enlightening or clarifying or steadying, gladdening of mind. And then maybe it'll stick there for a whole sit or a whole week or longer. And you can just trust that, oh, this is the spot. If alternately you sit, some of the, some of the progression, if it is a sequence, may be um, below the level of consciousness. And you may just find yourself surfacing in a place where you're just very attentive to fading away of engagement with experience, less struggle. You just sit there. So you can trust what happens. And you don't have to link it to the discourse in meditation, you, you'll come out sometimes, you'll be walking around at Trader Joe's, and you'll go, oh, here's where. This is what was coming up. I was, the mind was, was steadying and gladdening and resting. That's what was happening. So I think that's consistent with what, what others have said. But again, trust, have some confidence. And hopefully that's a segue into the seven um, factors of awakening. Diana. I think that's my cue. <laughs> Barbara, I think you had a question. Do you want to ask it? or? I see uh, the word seclusion repeatedly. I was wondering, at that time, did the monks meditate alone or do they meditate in groups? Yeah, um, I'll talk about this a little bit more um, later on today, but both, sometimes on their own and sometimes in groups. So, And then we can think of seclusion as literally, like physically isolated. We can also think of seclusion as kind of like senses guarded, eyes closed, kind of an inward focus and not engaging and busy with uh, what's happening else outside. So. I'm looking to you guys. Sure, go for it. Is it all right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, well, I, the first question I have is related to the question I was asked before, which is, uh, I'm unsure to what degree when one is meditating, one should simply be with the breath and sort of notice what arises and you know, embrace, accept what arises, which may or may not conform to these uh, descriptions. Uh, versus to what degree 
one actually sets about to cultivate a particular attitude, whether it's rapture or equanimity or what have you. I've always done the former, but I'm not quite... This seems to suggest something more like the latter, and I'm not sure um, what you all do or would recommend. That's the first question. The second question is this word concentration, which comes in here. I'm just wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about what is meant by that word. Yeah, and I didn't mean to forestall any and great questions earlier. And I'll just focus on the first one. The second one it provides a nice segue also back into the seven factors of awakening where it appears. Um, but you ask a really good question. The way in practice we balance sort of effort and allowing. I, you, might, you might put it that way. And um, the only thing I would do is draw attention to the fact that in a lot of the practice, the instructions seem to uh, indicate that when we bring attention to things, when we just um, are aware of what's happening and we are fully present with what's happening, we are cultivating. We are cultivating wholesome states of mind. And you can read that into this sequence of these 16 steps or other aspects of practice. But um, it's not necessarily the case that one's passive and one's active. There's, there is there is a... There is a um, um, energetic and active quality even to that sort of just allowing things to happen. So I don't know if that makes sense, but I think establishing what balance is useful at a particular moment, a particular phase of practice is just something that you one finds oneself into, uh, one's way into, and then um, trusts. So I'm sort of repeating myself. Does that, does that make sense? Sort of. I, I get the fact that, that it's neither active nor I understand the sense that it's neither active nor passive. Um, I guess my question is more to the question of to what degree is one um, attempting to cultivate a particular state of mind? I mean, in meta meditation, for example, which was rather new to me because I come from Zen meditation where it seems to be really one doesn't really try to cultivate a particular state of mind, at least in the training I got. But in meditation, it seems like you're trying to cultivate a particular state of mind. And here, it seems similarly, there's an attempt to cultivate, now I'm going to try to cultivate equanimity, which is distinct from rapture, let's say. Um, and I just, I just wonder what your own experience with that has been, and uh, uh, that, that's the question, I suppose. Yeah, maybe I'll say a few words about that, because uh, we are going to talk about the seven... Cultivating. Cultivating is a big word to me. Um, I feel like when uh, when I hear cultivation, it feels kind of stronger than uh, what is needed. And so, uh, when I uh, in uh, in the practice itself, um, a lot uh, that what I understood was really being able to recognize the state of the mind. And then by recognition, there's some momentum that the, the recognition itself can lead to. So over time, as you recognize more and more, oh, uh, mindfulness is present. And over time, the mindfulness might kind of suffuse you. And so that recognition and being able to recognize what is happening has some f- flavor of cultivation. 
But um, it's hard to kind of think there's someone who's really doing something. But really being present uh, for with the breath, with what is happening, that the states become more and more obvious. And then you can really register and recognize this is present. my microphone. Maybe we'll talk about concentration a little bit um, at the end specifically, what that is. But this um, idea of cultivation also leads into this discussion of the seven factors of awakening. So um, to tie us back to the sutta, um, I'm going to just read um, where we were last week, and that's in section 28. Those of you following along. Section 28 reads, That is how mindfulness of breathing, developed and cultivated, fulfill the foundations of mindfulness. And then the next section, section 29, And how, because do the four foundations of mindfulness, cultivated and developed, fulfill the enlightenment factors? So there's this progression from mindfulness of breathing, foundations of mindfulness, and now we're doing the enlightenment factors. Some of you may be well acquainted with these enlightenment factors. These are well-known set of capacities that we all have. And their um, development, I can use this expression, maybe their full flowering, their full expression of them supports non-clinging, supports letting go, supports awakening, hence their name, seven factors of awakening, or here they're called um, enlightenment factors. And in the sutta, we see this cultivation and the development happens in three steps. First is it just arises as a consequence of what was happening earlier. The second one is this expression, it's developed. And the third is it's fulfilled. So this word developed is not explicitly stated here in this sutta, nor is it explicitly stated in other suttas, but there's some implicit things that we can learn. One is um, just what Ying was talking about, is the recognition. Two, we know from some um, other suttas, in particular with the seven factors of awakening, is not only to notice, oh, mindfulness is present, investigation of states is present, but just to gentle, very gentle, soft inquiry. How did I get here? What, how, how, does, how does this happen that this was here? Oh yeah, I was just mindful. And now investigation, we can think of investigation as really having some contact with our object and kind of very gently asking this question, what is this? So to notice what, when we notice, for example, investigation of states, when that has arisen, to notice that, oh, just proceeding, or one of the conditions was mindfulness. And also to notice what gets in the way. Like what, how, when we have this idea of investigation of states, but it's just not available, what are the things that get in the way? So these are the ways in which we can um, cultivate and develop 
these states. One, they arise naturally, we recognize them. And two, there can be, like, how did I get here? What's happening? But I do want to emphasize, this is a very gentle, maybe asking the question is a way maybe just to connect as opposed to having to find a very particular answer. Maybe asking the question is where the power is. So many of you um, will know what these seven factors of awakening are. It starts with mindfulness, which is great, right? The whole sutta is about mindfulness of breathing, so it makes sense. It starts with mindfulness. Then it goes to investigation of states, often translated just as investigation. Then energy. Then rapture, which is often translated as joy. Then tranquility, concentration, equanimity. And they're presented in this um, sutta as a progression. So maybe, and there, maybe I'll say one last thing about this, is that um, you might have noticed as you were reading these paragraphs, there's a kind of like a formula for how each uh, paragraph goes. And that gives the sutta some, this, some repetition, which gives a certain amount of rhythm, and it also gives a certain amount of cohesion. So it's a way in which these suttas hang together. It's easier to memorize. It's easier to understand. It's not just a long list of uh, all kinds of facts, but it's definitely all tied together. So maybe I can ask uh, somebody to read uh, section 30, which ties together this um, foundation of mindfulness and the seven factors of awakening. Who would like to read section 30? Oh, it's, oh, I wanted to start. Um, it's right after this section with um, fulfilling the seven foundations, and it says, on whatever occasion a bhikkhu abides contemplating the body as a body, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, and then it says, on that occasion, unremitting mindfulness is established in him. I think it's like should be the third paragraph after the one that's, I think it's the third one, after, let um, me second. Bhikkhus, on whatever occasion a bhikkhu abides contemplating the body as a body, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world, on that occasion unremitting mindfulness is established in him or her. On whatever occasion unremitting, unremitting mindfulness is established in a bhikkhu, on that occasion the mindfulness enlightenment factor is aroused in her, and she develops it, and by development, it comes to fulfillment in her. Great, thank you. So here, here's a tying together of mindfulness. Uh, we saw mindfulness of breathing, as Ying said, with foundation of mindfulness, and then here it becomes an enlightenment factor as it gets. Uh, here is the word unremitting mindfulness, and then it gets cultivated. And then it, um, as he develops, and by development, it comes to fulfillment. The same formula is applied for the remaining six factors. One who has unremitting mindfulness, investigation of states arises. And then they develop and cultivate it. One who has investigation of states, then relentless energy arises. So this, I'm not going to go through all of these. But it's just a way and to tie together um, 
the mindfulness through all these seven factors. And it's a progression from mindfulness to equanimity. So that's one interpretation. Now I'll turn this over to Kim, who can give us another one. So before launching into a different scheme, I want to just um, provide some setting. Um, Diana led us through the text as it is in the, uh, in the discourse that's come to us. And so that's kind of the study component where we would look at the text and consider, okay, this is how the Buddha is said to have taught this, this way. And then we might consider whether our experience matches that or then we get questions like Matt's about to what degree do we, are we trying to cultivate this or should we you know, go with more what's happening and then the, pra- the practice side is then when we engage with that and what we do and so I want to offer that um, another teacher named uh, Bhikkhu Analio, some of you have heard of him has what he did with mindfulness of breathing is he's also a scholar practitioner but he sat and he did this practice for a long time and saw for himself how the mind, how the factors of awakening emerged from doing the 16 steps. And he tracked that in his own experience by doing it for a long time. And he concluded the same as the sutta in a general sense, yes, doing the 16 steps of mindfulness of breathing does result in uh, these factors of awakening coming into the mind and then kind of after the fact he tracked where that was and, and wrote it down and, and now actually teaches that. And so I have a handout. That's all preference because the handout, of course, is a little complicated. It has 16 steps and seven factors kind of uh, intermixed. But essentially he figures out um, which of the steps each factor first appears at. So that arousing or that establishing, arising that Diana mentioned, where does that happen? Do they all happen at the beginning? Does one happen in step three and one step 10? Do you have to wait till step 16 and then they all come at once? And so this is a possible scenario um, based on his observations of his own practice, which I thought was worth sharing with all of you. So when you get this, that's all preference so that when you get this you don't get lost in trying to read the whole page or anything but I am going to go over the key points on it once you get it. I think there's enough there. Well, just in case. Seven. Three, four, five. Should be enough. Okay. So does everybody have a piece of paper? Um, so this might be worth you know, looking at more later if you're interested in this scheme. But what he found for himself is that mindfulness is established already in the preliminaries. And we, in fact, just read that section where we sit um, ardent, fully aware, and mindful. Well, there's mindfulness right there before we even uh, start the 16 steps. And then he noticed that steps one and two require a little bit more engagement. When the mind is mindful already, then we might need to notice, is the breath long or short? This is not maybe the complete awakening factor of investigation of states, but it's where investigation is aroused in the mind. We have to check, is the breath long, short? How is it? And then in step three, there's a beginning 
of energy in the sense that one of the components of energy as an awakening factor is that it, it is persistent. And so there's a kind of an ongoing engagement. And in Analio's experience, that came through sustaining attention over the whole breath, which is required in this third step of uh, understanding the whole breath or the whole breath body, staying with it completely. And then joy, of course, is step five. I should say rapture. I'm using the language that he used. So rapture in the sutta is uh, explicitly in step five. And then tranquility, step four, calming the bodily formation or tranquilizing the bodily formation. And step eight, the same for the mental formation or activity. So this is the place where the mind establishes itself in tranquility. It then needs to be developed and come to fruition, as pointed out. But this is where are they aroused. And then we have concentration and equanimity being, well, concentration is clearly step 11. And then I guess I need a little explanation of step 12 being the place where equanimity comes in. In the sequence of the factors of awakening, equanimity is the last one. Um, Here he calls it equipoise. Um, But the description of that kind of equanimity is that it is equanimous to any mind state present, including concentration. So the mind gets to this very high development of being in a very exalted state in a sense but even that it is willing to be uh, equanimous about shall we say because concentration is very pleasant and very deep and it must be given up in order to uh, do the investigation move into wisdom see the arising and passing of phenomena so equanimity is the quality that allows the mind to rest equally with all experience that's there And so he points that to be um, step 12, the liberating step where the mind is liberated into rest, rest with whatever comes. That was how we described it when we talked about it in this class a couple sessions ago, the resting of the mind in all of experience. And then um, while not specifically part of the seven factors of awakening, we then have the final last tetrad, which as we talked about before is about the wisdom And so that helps point the mind toward the function of the factors of awakening, which is, of course, to awaken. So we'll touch into that a bit more later in this session also. So I realized that was a little bit fast, but I wanted to point it out as a fruit of this study and practice combination is that we come to our own understanding of the sutta. It's still completely true to what the sutta says, that the Uh, These 16 steps cultivate these seven factors and give them an opportunity to develop. Um, But the particular details of it are not in the sutta. This arose out of someone's practice. So maybe this gives you a sense of how you might write your own sheet for this someday um, or for other suttas that you've engaged with really in your practice and see what comes out. How do those teachings manifest in my mind and body? Thank you. How does this work for you? I mean, does this feel like this is a roadmap for you personally? I found some differences for myself, and um, but I, when it was explained to me, which was during an Anapanasati retreat, so there was the practice context there also, I could see it.
Um, but it might not have been how I would have written it down, but I felt that it was completely valid. But, you know, I also have an Anapanasati practice that is fairly, seems to be unfolding fairly traditionally. So, yeah, I, I imagine some people might might differ. Does anyone else want to comment on that? And what I would say is one of my Chinese teachers uh, from Taiwan uh, independent, independently had come up with a very similar structure, a mapping, uh, Anapanasati, uh, mindfulness of breathing, and the seven factors of awakening. I was amazed um the similarity <laughs> when I saw this. Yeah. That's through his own practice. Yeah. I had a question about this. Um, for each of the factors, it, um, and Diana talked about this, um, it's like aroused, developed, and then comes to fulfillment. I think I, I understand the first two somewhat, but the coming to fulfillment, could could you say a little bit more about that? Is that, what is that like? Like, is it when it's fulfilled, it leads to the next one, or it's just, it's perfect, you know, how would you um, describe that? Yeah, so this is a um, a good question. I think both of what you said can be true, that it comes to fulfillment in the sense that all seven factors of awakening work together and fulfillment is awakening. That's going to be one. Fulfillment could mean that it's mature and it um, culminates in the next step. But that would suggest that maybe you let go of the preceding steps, and that's not usually the case. Usually what happens is that all seven of them are a perfect balance and perfect expression. But what does this word perfect mean? I don't think I can give an answer, but I think we notice this in practice when energy and concentration are balanced, when investigation of states but tranquility are balanced. They're both happening, but they're not, there's no agitation, there's no, um, I'll just leave it like that, there's no agitation, everything just seems balanced and ripe. And there is no really nice description in the suttas anywhere exactly what this means. This is something that we can use our practice to guide and explore. Two questions. What does enlightenment mean in this context? And the second question is that it talks about rapture and uh, gladdening of the mind. Does it ever talk about why that happened? So I will talk a little bit about what liberation awakening means when we get to the next section. I'll talk explicitly about that. And um, gladdening the mind, why that happens. Why do people feel rapture? Why do people feel anger? But So something is triggering. Yeah. What, what does that mean? Yeah. Things, there's no magic here, so you're absolutely right. Things happen for a reason. And um, does somebody want to address this about uh, PT, uh, rapture? 
It's generally understood that um, as the mind quiets, starts to get quieted, quiet down, that all the things that agitate it, that disturb, that get in the way, have gone. And then there's just this natural, it's just a natural consequence of no longer being agitated, is to be, I think, Rapture can be a strong word, and sometimes it is a strong experience. But it's more like the absence of everything that makes us not feel rapture goes away. And then rapture just arises. So in other words, we're saying that it's the mind that is covering the rapture. The rapture is innate in everyone. Yeah, yeah. I would say that. Yeah, it's kind of like a natural process that, uh, rapture is born out of not no longer preoccupied by the worries and concerns that we have. The text says that these awakening factors unfold with um, unremitting attention to the breath, mind states, etc. In my practice, it's it's not unremitting. (laughs) My mind is still. It goes all over the place. So what I do instead is um, pretty much I just sit there and uh, if I sit there long enough, finally my mind settles down start to let go of the compulsive thinking, uh, reach some um, (coughs) happiness, equanimity. Um, Maybe I'll notice what my mind states are. Oh, yes. And see they're not helpful. Maybe let go of them some, and so forth and so on. So so, uh, it's far from unremitting attention. It's not really concentration. It's more like mindfulness. And so I'm supposing that these factors of awakening can still emerge, but it's going to happen more slowly and less according to a chart. Does that sound right? Maybe intermittently, you know, it happens, you, you observe it, but then, you know, we lost our mind and thoughts again, then yeah. it might kind of disappear again. Intermittent describes yeah. me for sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, that, Anyone else? Does, does anyone else have a thought on 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 that? I'm gonna agree with Yang. Yes. <laughs> okay. Right. Um, this is sort of an aside, but um Gil recently gave a talk on seven factors of awakening. Did anybody hear that? It was in the last week, I think. And it it sounded just like a very natural, um, unremitting unfolding of whatever, which, you know, my experience, and maybe this is part of what Bill was saying, is it, I mean, it's a much more laborious process, and maybe that's what changes with years of practice. I mean, I don't... Maybe I'll just say, remember the setting of this sutta. These are monastics 
who have been practicing for four months. So maybe your mindfulness would be a little bit stronger or things would be a little, you know, would be different than just, you know, our daily life showing up uh, sometimes or sitting or something like this, right? So remember that this is a particular setting in which this is, discussion is happening. Okay, so with that, uh, we are going to practice this a little bit. Uh, so we'll do a, a guided meditation with uh, mindfulness of breathing and seven factors of awakening. And so to begin, maybe take a, a few long deep breaths. Allow your posture to settle. And bring sense of a presence, whether it's through the body, the posture, or your breath. Just take a few moments to connect with the body and with the breath. Really allow the sense of here and now to register. We can begin through the instructions of Anapanasati. But before we do that, I hope to evoke an image or or an analogy in your mind. And that is a, a flowering plant. And if you think of the seven factors of awakening as the seven petals of the flower and the mindfulness of breathing is that of watering the plant, nurturing the plant. And initially... We're watering the plant regularly, loosening the soil to allow the plant to grow. Simply being aware of the breath, breathing in and breathing out. Is that the activity of watering? Maybe noticing some details of the breathing. 
staying connected and allowing the thoughts, plans, to-dos to fall away. Initially, the seven petals might be wrapped up, not quite visible. The flower is not blossom yet. We stay connected with our breath, keep watering, nurturing the plant. is staying connected with the breath, we may notice that the mindfulness is present. As we pay attention to the breath, this one, this breath, there is mindfulness. The petal of mindfulness might open up just slightly and become visible. And as we stay connected with our breath, becoming curious about the details of the breath, differentiating the qualities and sensations. Long, short, smooth, tight. As we begin to see the details, the gaps between the in-breath and the out-breath, There he is, the petal of investigation. Curiosity. Becoming interested in the process of breathing. this process of connecting fully with the breath allow us to feel a sense of energy or energetic quality. Stay connected. Not drifting into the thoughts or ideas commentaries, but just to stay connected with the breath. 
and the petal of energy, the factor of energy might become visible. Continue to water this plant with the mindfulness of breathing. Notice there may be quality of joy or tranquility as are the other petals that might open up ever so slightly as we stay connected with our breathing. All these factors might kind of like the petals overlapping with each other. As one opens, they can move the other petals to ever so slightly open up and notice the quality of the stillness. Mind may be steady. And there may be a sense of a balance, equanimity. Not for or against anything. Leaning forward, falling backwards. As we continue to stay connected with the process of breathing, the petals might open up. The factors of awakening can mature. As these factors become more and more present, There may be a fragrance of freedom or awakening that arise out of the opening. And 
Allow that possibility to emerge. All through this process of watering the plant. Knowing clearly Breathing in, breathing out. So let us um, pause again. <clears throat> Briefly to, to see if there are any other questions after that brief practice period. What comes up for people in a brief sit with the with the seven factors being watered by the attention to the breath? seven petals unfolding in Ying simile. Let's say one thing, I thought that was a beautiful metaphor. Very, uh, very powerful for me. Any other reflections, questions? move on to this next section of the sutta. And the version that's translated by Bhikkhu Bodhi, it's called, I think it's called The Fulfillment of True Knowledge and Deliverance. I think that's the, yes. And then maybe I'll just read this. And how, Bhikkhus, do the seven enlightenment factors developed and cultivated fulfill true knowledge and deliverance? In section 42, those of you who have the numbers, the answer is, here, bhikkhus, a bhikkhu 
develops the mindfulness enlightenment factor, which is supported by seclusion, dispassion, and cessation, and ripens in relinquishment. Then it goes through all the other six in the same way. And then that is how the seven enlightenment factors developed and cultivated fulfill true knowledge and deliverance. I'll say a few words here. True knowledge and deliverance. True knowledge is a translation of vidya. Some of you may know a vidya as ignorance. So vidya also could just be knowledge, but Bhikkhubodhi here is using the expression true knowledge. The commentaries say this is knowledge of the four noble truths. That's not in the sutta. But that's what the commentaries, you know, like 800 to 1,000 years later, that's how, what they were interpreting, what exactly this knowledge is, is of the Four Noble Truths. And this idea of deliverance, this word is vemuti, sometimes uh, translated as liberation, or, yeah, often, that's often how it's done. So liberated from what? One could um, interpret this as liberated from the defilements, liberated from greed, Hatred and delusion. Complete absence of anything that resembles greed, hatred, or delusion. is So a liberation from that. So this is what awakening is. As, um, if, you know, I'm throwing in some interpretations here. All we have is true knowledge and deliverance. We can interpret true knowledge as knowledge of the Four Noble Truths and deliverance from greed, hatred, and delusion. And then we get there, there's these expressions, the seven factors of awakening, supported by seclusion, dispassion, cessation, ripening and relinquishment. You might, um, there's a few ways we can interpret this. Maybe I'll just offer this one interpretation. Is that um, seclusion, dispassion, cessation, relinquishment... Sometimes, in some settings, in some suttas, are synonyms for nibbana. So, this idea of seven factors of awakening are supported by these, means the seven factors of awakening are cultivated, are developed with this aim towards nibbana, with this general direction of going towards nibbana. Maybe sometimes there's this feeling that these seven factors of awakening are being developed maybe just to feel more comfortable. And that might be an initial way in which we all practice this, but this is pointing towards when you have the aim or the direction towards awakening. That's when the seven factors of awakening can lead to that. And... Maybe I'll leave it with that and then turn it over to David who can say some more. Yeah. um, Just a brief set of reflections before we we do some small group uh, discussion. Um, And it's it's a little hard to to wrap things up from our discussion today and last week. What occurs to me to say, though, today, now, is that it might seem from the emphasis of this week and last week that um, the emphasis of this sutta is is on awakening or on true knowledge and deliverance. But I think maybe we 
we've given it uh, apparently more emphasis than it has. I think what the sutta says in the language you've just read is, if you do these 16 steps, if you bring attention to breathing, you don't have to worry much about fulfilling the four foundations of mindfulness or the seven awakening factors. They happen when you do the practice. It's really a sutta that's focused on the means. And I, th- I think this is a really important um, um, aspect of our practice that the instructions in the text focus, when they're meditation instructions, focus a great deal on means and a lot less on ends. And it's provided in the guided too. You know, we don't know how to make flowers bloom. You can't do it. But we can water. We can keep the soil moist. We can provide nutrients. We can clear away weeds. We can provide sunlight. Um, When we do those things, we can't, unless we're perverse about it, we can't stop the flower from blooming. (laughs) Right? So I think this is one of the reasons that, as we read at the outset, this was such a central practice in... Um, the Buddha's teaching. And just to remind you, as we said at the beginning, the Buddha talked about this practice as being the only practice you need to experience all that his teachings contained. Um, And reminded us in various places that this was his practice before awakening and after awakening. He just kept focused on watering. Um, And... uh, you know, a field of flowers bloomed. We wanted to leave just a little time to sort of return to Anne's question and just say something very briefly for each of us about how this practice has kind of developed for us. And I think you've gotten a flavor of that maybe in listening to it. I'm really struck by how much similarity there is and a certain redundancy is here. We enjoy doing this together, but I found myself, you know, Ying says this in response, Diana says this, I nod my head. Kim says this, and we're all nodding our heads. A lot of, um, I think there's a certain, there's a lot of um, um, variety in individual experience of practice, but there's also a lot of just, you know, um, path um, that's common. I think I would just say for me um, that this has been really an important practice for me. Um, with that focus on means, I would just kind of say that, um, you know, when in doubt, when doubt arises, when I can't remember or not sure what awakening means in this context or other contexts, I just find out where the breath is, you know, is the mind steadying and gladdening. Um, I may not use those words. I may not think in terms of the four tetrads or they may just descend. Um, I think this becomes with practice, a thoroughly internalized practice. I don't, I don't think about the steps anymore. I probably once memorized them, but they arise with practice. And again, I, I would, in my final thing I said at the outset was, for me, it's, it's useful to watch these come up as descriptions of what happens in practice if you pay attention to what's going on in your experience instead of things you have to make happen. Um, a little bit of making happen, fake until we make it, a little bit of effort is useful and necessary. But a lot of it is paying careful attention. When you do, you'll see this happen. You don't have to really do very much, except for be fully present.
Yeah, so our intention in this segment was to have chances for several of us to share how this practice has, uh, study and practice has been helpful for us using this teaching. And I can say that I've had a mindfulness of breathing practice for a long time, and I didn't know anything about the sutta when I started it. um, But later um, read it and found that it was quite meaningful. And then I began to watch how things unfold in it. And the reason I wanted to share this teaching from Bhikkhu Inalio, for example, is that I've also found quite a lot of interest in observing how it comes about. And my experience is similar to what Anne actually spontaneously mentioned earlier, is that sometimes uh, my mind will settle on a particular step or a couple of steps, and that just seems to be what it's doing today. And other times um, I'll feel like I'm going through cycle after cycle of the 16. Uh, I've had sittings where I was just doing the breath and Maybe I even lost, probably lost track slightly of what I was doing at some point, but then suddenly the thought will come to my mind, this is a long breath, which is step one. (laughs) So it's like, oh, something, and it felt, has a feeling of completion to it, like, oh, I don't know what was relinquished, but something went through, a new cycle has started. I don't think we need to think of this as a sequence or as a particular thing that we need to do, but it's a framework through which the mind cultivates itself. And that's been my experience of it. Thank you. So maybe I'll just build upon what uh, David and uh, Kim said. One of the th- benefit that I observed was uh, when uh, when we practice without kind of intentionally trying to recall and recite, but really allow the practice unfold. But then uh, when the processes start to unfold in your own experience, certain strong registration can happen when you uh, come to recognize, wow, this is what the sutta said. This is how it feels like. And that can give you a tremendous amount of confidence and trust in this teaching. And that can really kind of move the practice give, kind of like a give another life to it, <laughs> a different kind of life to it, because now you're living it rather than kind of uh, having it as an intellectual play. And so that confi- confidence and trust in the teaching and the, in the Buddha, Dharma Sangha, can really grow uh, through this practice of combining sutta and sutta studies and the practice. So now I'll add a little bit how I've practiced uh, with this. It's been a, uh, with a different emphasis than what I've heard Kim Ying and David say. That is, um, we mentioned early on in this course how the the fourth step in each tetra, that is steps 4, 8, 12, and 16, are about a certain type of either tranquilizing or letting go. This kind of like calming or tranquilizing, letting go. That, for me, has been enormously powerful for me. So, this just for my practice in general. I'm just, rather than the particular where am I and what's exactly happening, it's more of a feeling. Is this, am I, is this a movement towards tranquility? Is this a movement towards letting go? And that has been really helpful for me. 
really helpful. So I have kind of four of our practitioners kind of sharing with you our, our experience that we've all just been interacting with and engaging with and practicing with this text and practice. All right, and so with that, it's going to be your turn to have a chance to talk about, uh, talk with each other. So let's see, we have eight people. Uh, We'll do two groups of three and one group of two. Why don't you get yourselves together and then uh, we'll give you the first question. Okay, so the first, um, let let me offer you then the first question. Um, oh, you're still arranging. Okay, so the first question about th- is about the seven factors, and we had the lovely guided meditation with the flowers. So maybe you can consider which of these flower petals um, feels the most supportive for you today. It doesn't need to be your whole practice, your whole focus, but just like today, what kind of came up and... Um, maybe share a little bit about how and why you decided on that one. And as a review, I can read the seven factors for you again. They are, of course, on the handout. So mindfulness, investigation, energy, rapture, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. So when you think of those seven, which one feels the juiciest for you right now? And share a bit about why it's always interesting to hear what other people say about this so let's have each person share and we'll just um we'll just notice when it seems like the group has gotten through that and then there's a second question okay very good so the second question for you to consider uh you can stay in your groups for now um the second question is, how will you incorporate the teachings of this class going forward? And it doesn't have to be like your life plan. Again, it's a, it can be something very simple. You know, what, what will you do soon? Or what general direction? Or what specific thing would you like to investigate next? Or something. But the teachings that we've gone over related to the sutta, how will you incorporate those going forward? Okay, so now you can come back and go ahead, Ying. All right, as you settle back uh, back into uh, the room, I'd like to invite uh, anyone to report back on what you shared, or it could be something that you didn't share, but you're compelled to ask a question or make a comment. Feel free. I think one thing that came up in our group um, was the sense that this was a kind of map, um, which, like any map, uh, uh, can be helpful or can be kind of confining um, if you confuse it with the territory. Um, and speaking 
personally, I would say that a lot of things that come up for me in meditation are frankly extremely difficult to put into words. And I try not to really do that when I'm meditating. Um, and so then having words for it after meditating can be helpful in part because I can say, oh, I'm not alone. There are other people. That word is analogous to something that I've experienced and clearly somebody else has experienced something that seems to be in the same general ballpark. Um, but it could, then I am also aware of the sense that it could be uh, you know, too confining um, to, uh, to always think of it as a kind of discursive march through well-marked territory. Um, so those were some of my thoughts and I think our thoughts. Thank you. You guys are so amazing. Um, what I note about this, the Sutta study and also the practice throughout the weeks is how embodied this is. And, and it seems before the Sutta reading, it, there's almost, if you were to just read it, it seems transcendental and even escapist to an untrained mind. It's like, oh, nirvana sounds like you're going to go somewhere. It's like, no, no, it's the complete opposite. It's completely imminent. It is n completely not escaping, like by being imminently present. And, um, and what this embodiment makes me wonder um, is about these foundations, and in particularly uh, the, the energy one of the seven is... It, uh, is this energy um, self-generated from all these other ones? Um, or can you cheat and have caffeine um, so that you can concentrate? Because the embodiment is simultaneously very grounding. But then I wonder, like for example, like today I was realizing that um, I really needed... Um, I hadn't had the proper sleep and I needed more energy and I was like, oh, well, I know there's a Starbucks place for energy which then makes me more able to meditate and focus and actually helps me water the plant more. And so I'm wondering what the relationship of this embodiment and energy with the rest of the seven is. Yeah, so and specifically with this question, I noticed this too. I was thinking about, well, what is, how is any of these seven factors, what makes it an enlightenment factor, right? We all have a certain amount of tranquility, we all have a certain amount of energy, we all have a certain amount of mindfulness, right? So in particular, the language is, let's see here if I have the... In, on whatever occasion... Tireless energy is aroused in a bhikkhu who investigates and examines that state with wisdom and embarks upon a full inquiry into it. On that occasion, the energy enlightenment factor is aroused in him. So they're tying in if the energy comes from investigation of states, if that's the, kind of the I don't know, the, one of the primary conditions in which caused it to arouse, arise, then it's on the enlightenment factor. 
I will say that's not necessarily my exact experience. That um, lots of different things that can support the arising of energy. But whether Starbucks can get us to awakening, I don't know. But <laughs> we can try and then explore and embody and see how it feels for ourselves. And maybe David has something to say. Yeah, one of the stories of the origin of tea is that a longtime meditator, frustrated by her inability to stay awake uh, and keep her eyes open, cuts off her eyelids and drops them in the ground next to her whence springs the first tea plant. Um, so there's a long association between tea and caffeine and, and meditative contemplative practice. But I think it goes back to a point that Barbara mentioned earlier, which I had sort of wanted to say something about then, which is the importance of recognizing that all these things are inherent aspects of humanity, of, of being alive in a human body. Um, and we spend a lot of time chasing rapture and contentment and happiness and energy and curiosity. And um, yet they're all within. And um, sometimes I think it can be useful to let some of the um, let some of the language be softer and uh, not maybe look for the kind of energy that caffeine brings so much as what energy is available in the moment. <laughs> um, bringing attention to it cultivates it and, and deepens it and um, reinforces it in, in ways that support practice. So all of these things are there, inclu- and this is true from both means and ends. In other words, uh, means like mindfulness, energy, dhammavichaya, investigation, uh, are there as equally as our contentment and um, seeing things as they really are and awakening. They're all there in every moment. We don't have to really look anywhere, like you're saying, Nemo. Don't, it's not going somewhere else. So anyway, that's a set of reflections in sort of telegraphic form on the question of caffeine. And maybe I'll just say that... Um, so those factors themselves um, are kind of... You know, I can think of them as... Um, um, a tool for us and what we're aiming at is a deep sense of um, relinquishment I guess this is what the uh, the, the sutta is um, is using what over time we observe is not necessarily uh, we're clinging to energy or rapture but that clinging is no longer present. Or, you know, the stronger words is completely down with, right? And, and so, uh, but when cultivating this uh, seven factors of awakening, we become very sensitive to where and what we cling. And this uh, uh, equanimity, uh, equanimity is a state of uh, quite uh, very, very much letting go of any form of leaning this way and that way, looking for anything. And that is very conducive for us to really feel what it feels like when there's no clinging. 
And so that's kind of what is, this is really pointing at. You know, all of these factors that we're cultivating, developing, is to allow us to really have a deep sense of what it is when we no longer cling. And that can inform us, you know, when we do cling. <laughs> um, it's possible not to. And Barbara, you have a question? So if this is a map, um, and so it's good to know about the destination. You mentioned the goal of this map is nirvana. What is the definition of nirvana? I know there are different ways, there are different interpretations. So in Vipassana, what is the definition? So classically, the um, description in this tradition is that it's the complete absence of greed, hatred, or delusion in the mind. So we shy away from saying what's present, (laughs) but as long as those are absent, uh, it would be the goal. And possibly that may manifest differently depending on the conditions that went into that, but greed, hatred, and delusion will be completely extinguished. Yeah, I understand what you're saying, but usually when we want to go somewhere, we have a uh, destiny in mind. Usually it's not a negative the devoid of, you know, the defilement. Usually it's like nirvana. There's whatever it is, you know, it's, it's a, you can describe it or you can define it. But to define it with a negative is not very motivating. Well, yeah. <laughs> I see David's leaning for the microphone. Do you? I, well, I just, because it sometimes falls to me to comment on language, I, I just want to say a couple things and also ask people for a couple more minutes because you asked about what Nibbana is about one minute to three which you know <laughs> maybe that was purposeful maybe maybe um, but I, I I think it's useful to note that it seems to be um, it seems to be useful to remember that it's a verb and in, in you know recent recent teachings that's always emphasized in the books that are you know among you know current in our scene but I think it's a really hard idea to let go of the idea of nouns or places or states of being and really sit with the idea that it's about a releasing. It's really useful when we ask questions about Nibbana, when we talk about it, that we talk with verbs. I mean, we can, we can actually bring into our language, which structures our, our way of being in the world, the little bit that we, that we have hint to in the text, which is... As Kim said, I would just add, um, you know, the absence of, it's the letting go of those things. And maybe time isn't that important. Maybe it's a continuous, everlasting letting go. Or maybe it's a moment-to-moment letting go. That's not clear. But that it's a letting go instead of a state of having let go or something along those lines. Or a place after which there is no clinging ever again. Those things aren't provided in these texts. They're, they don't seem to be there. 
Um, so just, just that. Proper to chime in on this, yeah, okay. Um, speaking in terms of negatives, uh, suppose you hear not angry, not sad, not craving, not clinging, not in a hurry, not anxious, not fearful. Does it make you? Does it make us happier to hear that? So that's the motivation for me. That was beautiful, and um, I don't want to <clears throat> preempt Yang, but what what we had intended to do at the very end, you've just sort of begun. Bill, uh, which is to ask each of us, uh, or each of you rather, to say any last thing that's useful in sort of, you know, bringing some closure to this these five weeks of exploration. This group of people has been here for most of these five, so this is this is our, you know, our little sangha for this for this work. So why don't I'll pass the microphone around, say anything uh, that that comes to mind, and we'll we'll sort of let that be our the way we let go of this class. Um, I really appreciate the humility of all four of you and how you come to this with just such beautiful intention. Um, And also the, the guided meditations that were interwoven with our study of the text so that we don't get too cerebral and... Um, and bring, keep bringing it back to our practice. I really enjoyed the last five weeks. Uh, I look forward to every Wednesday. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I've learned more in the last five weeks than the last three years coming to the talks. It has opened doors for me, and I said that I really have more respect and appreciation of the practice and I really uh, appreciate you guys taking your time out to do this. I think it's extremely valuable. I wish more people would take advantage of it because we're really getting to the core of the teaching. That's what I'm saying. Well, I would echo what's been said um, and just add more personally that uh, these texts are difficult for me to know how to connect with, more difficult than other aspects um, of Buddhist scripture or writings um, for whatever reason I found these early polytexts quite alien um, and so this has been very helpful for me personally to to make them less less alien more familiar and more embodied in my own practice um, I think the greatest virtue of of the study for me has been the realization that that freedom is not an event but a path and the foundations for this path 
have been, you know, people say, uh, maybe my mind is such that it's very formulaic. I'm like, oh, here, here's how you do it. Uh, and it's like, no, you know, you can't just have formulas. But because of you guys, now I can say, well, actually, there's actually formulas. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still a path. So it's not about the formulas. The formula is more like the train getting you there. Um, so um, I really loved it in a way that I didn't really expect to. So um, I'm just appreciative of the four of you. And um, I look forward to continuing with the formulas or the path or both. So thank you. I've read this sutta, I think, a couple times before, but I think I did not understand it very well. But this time, uh, I see the linkage with and parallel construction with the Satipatthana Sutta. Um, and so now I can read this again in the future, I think with a lot more understanding and benefit. Thank you. Um, I'm uh, it's so... It's amazing how valuable it is. It has been to me how how enriching to study the suttas. Um, and last week I was so frustrated the, in my small group. I was like, "Oh my god!" I was so because I was struggling with understanding it so much, and I couldn't. Oh, so frustrating. And this week, I mean, I do have the benefit of being on retreat with Diana for four days this last weekend, so I'm much more in a better place to receive our thing, and I've done. Um, been sitting with it, had a chance to sit with it more, but really hearing, like, you know, what pre- presenting how something as seemingly complex, like when you read the translate a translation without somebody with you to help you struggle with it or talk about their experience, when you hear that it kind of translated into more. Um, here and now experiences and what you have shared today about how yours doesn't necessarily follow this and that you can, you can, yeah, basically I'm not explaining this really well, but just kind of bringing it more into a more flexible instead of a set apart, just reading it by yourself and being like, oh my God, I'm, it doesn't mean anything to me. I can't get through it has just been so amazing to sit. And Kim, I, I mean, I've had the benefit of being with you on another sutta, like retreat, small, but just it's so enriching. And so thank you for this amazing experience. Um, I've done virtually no sutta study. And so I really felt like I was, this was over my head for mo- most of this course. In fact, last week I felt like I ended in a state of complete confusion. So I went home and I went onto the website. I printed out Gill's translation. Anyway, I did some homework and that was very beneficial. Um, and I missed one class. And so, but I, I do uh, think I'm going to try to work with the 16 steps in my meditation, like Ying suggested the first week. Um, I was when you gave the guided meditation today, I was noticing that some of those states were present within myself. I just wasn't aware of it. I wasn't sensitive to it. I mean, I was wondering if I was just 
being suggestible somehow by hearing it, but I actually think they're there, and I'm just not mindful of them yet. But anyway, thank you. I feel like I did. I've never read this sutta before, and I got a great deal out of it. So thank you. Sorry, we're slightly over, but um, it's because of our love of the suttas. So, <laughs> our, um, just to wrap up, um, one more minute is that it's traditional, and I find also quite meaningful to offer the merit of what we've done uh, for the benefit of all beings. So we can reflect. Just take a moment to reflect on all the good work that we've done in this last month over the course of this class, the connection to other people that are interested in study and practice, the connection to the sutta in a deeper way, and hopefully the connection to our own practice and our own heart in some way, bringing forth all the good qualities that are talked about in the sutta. And now we have this flower that's beginning to open in some way and we can wish going forward as a sustaining our own practice and bringing it to others that all the benefits that have come from this time will spread outward and touch other beings in ways that are direct, indirect, ways that we can see and ways that we can't even imagine spreading out like ripples from this place and Maybe like the way the scent of the flower wafts onto the wind and heads off into many places and brings joy and peace and pleasantness wherever it lands. So we can wish that all beings may find the qualities that are mentioned in the sutta in whatever way, that all beings may find happiness, that all beings may find tranquility, and that all beings everywhere may come to no awakening.